Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you for having a, a Brit in your pulpit. The strange accent is an English accent. And uh, it's been a year now since my wife, Andrea, and I and our two children, Leah and Jacob, have been uh, in the United States. Came over to study in Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and uh, now finishing up my final year uh, there. And so it's uh, a privilege for me to be able to uh, come here this evening and preach uh, the word to you. Thank you for having me. A sermon text will be taken from the fifth chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, we'll be reading the entirety of the chapter from verse 1 all the way down to verse 32. As we read together, I remind you that this is God's holy, infallible, and life-giving word. Genesis chapter 5, beginning to read in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I ask you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing on our time together. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we pause now to bow our heads and hearts before you, readily acknowledging our unworthiness to come into your presence. Father, we thank you that we are products of free and sovereign grace. We thank you, O Lord, that you, in your most wise, holy, and perfect counsel, have brought us together this evening to sit for a while at the feet of our Lord Jesus and to learn from him. And so we pray now, as this text is preached, that you would help both preacher and listener, to give ourselves in worship to you, that all that is said and thought and done would be to your honor and your praise. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. My wife's grandfather was a proud Scotsman. So proud was he of his highland heritage that when Andrea's mother was in labor with her, he tried to persuade the family to rush up over the border so that she might be born in Scotland. Well, one day, Grandpa decided to take a DNA test to find out just how pure his Scottish blood was. And when the results came back, uh, the Scotsman made a shocking discovery. Uh, The analysis read, 20% Scottish, 80% English. And as you can imagine, uh, Gordon was less than pleased. Well, in the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis, we find ourselves uh, perusing one of the Bible's many family trees. And the background to this DNA report is not a contrast between the stock of England and the stock of Scotland, but between the seed of Cain and the seed of Seth. 
The central theme which the Spirit drives home here is as follows. The seed of the woman will deliver his church from sin and death. The seed of the woman will deliver his church from sin and death. And you'll discover this by following three points derived from the text. Point number one, the hearse in verses 1 to 20. Point number two, the herald in verses 21 to 24. And then point number three, the hope in verses 25 to 32. So if you would, let's begin now with the first of those three points, the the hearse in verses 1 to 20. You know, it's uh, rather fascinating that uh, when Mo- uh, Moses wanted to display to his readers the successes of the wicked in chapter 4, he took them to the market, showed their prosperity. But when it was his desire to show the seed of the righteous in chapter 5, he brings us to the morgue to see their frailty. Why is that? Well, I think the answer is really quite simple. It is the sons of God and only the sons of God who live a life worth living and die a death worth dying. Consider this, there is no funeral in heaven for the unrighteous. Let the dead bury their own dead, says the Son in one place. And then says the Spirit in another, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death. Of his saints. Well, you know, if there's one passage in the whole of the Bible which proves beyond doubt that Satan is a liar, it's right here under our noses. After all, it was the serpent himself who had beguiled our first mother in the garden with those audacious words, You will not surely die. And it's here that we find that. Statement refuted no less than eight times. Listen to the relentless refrain as the hearse rolls on through these verses, as the coffin of each saint is carried before the eyes of all, and as the funeral choir chants those chilling words over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died was uh, Benjamin Franklin who once said that two things are certain in life, death and taxes. And although I think it unlikely that their incomes were curtailed in those days, it is nonetheless true that their lives were cut short. But you say, uh, didn't they live for centuries? True. But they were supposed to live forever. What is 969 years, really, in comparison with eternity? Well, verse 3 is unambiguous as to why Adam's children followed him into the grave. Because they were born in his likeness. And no longer was man to be an immediate and clear reflection of his maker, but a reflection of a reflection. 
It's a bit like when you go to uh, you know, check yourself out in the mirror in the morning and, uh, and the glass is so filthy that you can hardly discern your own outline. So has the image of God in fallen humanity been obscured by the disease of sin. A disease which claims the lives of all who are contaminated. Now, of course, uh, death is a taboo subject in today's society, isn't it? It's the elephant in the room which uh, nobody wants to address. Uh, we hear of it in the news. We read about it in the paper. We, we even are, uh, are confronted by it in the passing of a loved one. But all too often, instead of facing the reality of our mortality, we soothe our hearts with that old serpentine lie. There, there, we say, that'll never happen to you. Death seems so abstract to many. This is especially true for those of us who are younger in years. We simply presume that we have a long life before us, that things will continue as they are now for many years to come, but the reality is that we could breathe our last at any moment, no matter what age or stage we are in life. Think about this, uh, you who put off death and rarely allow it to occupy your thoughts. The first funeral in history was for a young man. His name was Abel and, and his end came under tragic circumstances. Therefore, do not be fooled. Because at any point, that could well be you. Jonathan Edwards was only a young man when he penned his famous resolutions around the age of 18, if my memory serves me correctly. And listen to one of the commitments which this godly teenager made at such an early phase in his life. Resolved, he writes, to think much on all occasions about my own dying and of the common things which are involved with and surround Death. Perhaps then, Christians, it would do us good to take a stroll in a cemetery every now and then. Perhaps it would benefit us to be reminded on occasion that ashes are to ashes and dust to dust. Perhaps we ought to periodically ponder those profound words of the poet, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The first point I want you to see in this passage is the hearse in verses 1 to 20. But then consider also with me our second point, the herald in verses 21 to 24. James Mace was one of Britain's Greatest boxers in the 21st century. A champion in three different weight classes. He was a man not to be messed with, especially considering back then they competed without gloves. Well, as it so happened, James had a son by the name of Alfred, who was a pastor. And one day, as this father and son were walking the streets of their hometown in England... 
uh, Alfred spotted a funeral procession coming down uh, the road. And so he, he stopped suddenly in his tracks, turned to his father and said, There he is again, Dad, and only been beaten once. To which the boxer responded with his hands up, Where is he? There, said the preacher. His name is Death. Well, in verses 21 to 24 of our text, the author introduces us to a man who managed to escape the talons of death. And there are three aspects of Enoch's life and ministry to which I would now draw your attention. Number one, his devotion. Number two, his declaration. And number three, his departure. Number one, his devotion. Amid the anarchy of an apostate generation, this fellow remained faithful to his creator. According to verse 24, he walked continually with God. The form of the verb highlights a a consistent and habitual action. It's the same one used of Jehovah in the Garden of Eden as he he strolled in the cool of the day and communed face to face with Adam as a man does with his friend. I wonder, do you hear what the Spirit has to say to you through these verses? He's showing you that despite the hostility from Satan without and despite the opposition from sin within, Yet a man, by the power of grace, can have consistent, uninterrupted fellowship with his maker. Here was a believer who had his priorities in order. Oh, you know, we we marvel at his rapture to God. But dare I say, what's even more extraordinary here was his relationship with God. You see, ever before Enoch was carried off into the kingdom beyond the skies, each time as he bowed his knees in prayer, he was already being transported into the divine presence. In other words, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. So tell me, believer, how is your walk with the Lord? Can you say that despite all that has transpired in the world this week around you, that you have nonetheless remained resolute in your commitment to Christ? How is your prayer life? Do you cherish every moment with the Savior? Are you frequently seeking his face in the secret place? Is there something about you which sets you apart from this perverse generation? If not, then let Enoch's devotion be a rebuke to your worldliness. First, his devotion, but then second, his uh, declaration. Here the heralds a sermon which uh, Jude, the half-brother of our Lord, uh, transcribes for us in the uh, penultimate book of the New Testament. 
Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's what you call hellfire preaching, isn't it? This preacher prophesied the second coming of Christ over two and a half millennia before his first coming. Notice how theocentric or God-centered his message is. Four times in that brief quote alone is the word ungodly employed. Here was a pastor who understood That sin is first and foremost an offense to the Lord. And that's the reason it's so vile. And so again, saints, is your witness to sinners as bold and as grave as this man's? Do you carry around a heavy burden for the condition of the lost? Do you feel compelled to, to warn them of the coming judgment, to confront them on their ungodliness. You see, only someone who is intimate with God will proclaim a message like this sincerely. It requires a, a shift in perspective, a, a recalibration of the mind and of the heart to see this world from heaven's perspective. May God help us to imitate Enoch as he imitates Christ in this regard also. First, his devotion. Second, his declaration. And then third, his departure. Just as we've seen that Enoch's devotion for the Lord was reminiscent of Adam's living in the garden, So now we'll find that his departure to the Lord is reminiscent of Adam's landing in the garden. For in the same way that the first man was taken from the ground where he was formed, carried over the river of life, and placed in the midst of paradise, so is Enoch, plucked by God from the earth, carried over the river of death, and planted in heaven. Until now, every life on our list has terminated in the tomb. From Adam to Enosh, Kenan to Jared, not one man has been able to escape the clutches of death. But then came Enoch. And here we discover that if the account of Adam's death was there to prove Satan a liar, And the account of Enoch's deliverance is there to prove him a loser. Now this uh, miraculous withdrawal from the world is typical. It typifies uh, Jesus' ascension. After all, it was the, the prince of life himself who gave up his life in order that we might live forever. And then having uh, taken our nature to himself, he reascended his celestial throne, thereby removing that 
roadblock from Enoch's heavenly highway. And so, in the words of the Apostle, we who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ will not taste death, but upon hearing that trumpet blast, will be caught up to meet him in the clouds. In other words, we might say of that generation that a man was not, for God took him. Thus far, The hearse in verses 1 to 20 and the herald in verses 21 to 24. Finally, let's consider our third point, the hope in verses 25 to 32. The only two children in the audience are my own, so I'll address them as I plan to address the children. Leah. Who likes birthday cakes? (laughs) And when you have your birthday cake, do you like to blow out the candles? Yeah, good. Now tell me, and anyone can answer this one. If Methuselah had been given a cake (laughs) for his last birthday, how many candles would he have had to blow out? (laughs) 969. Now, I don't know what's more impressive, uh, the size of the cake to fit them on in that case or the size of the lungs to blow them out. But on a more serious note, here's the point that I, I want you to understand. The reason Methuselah lived so long is because his life bore witness to God's patience with sinners. In fact, uh, his father gave him the name Methuselah because in Hebrew it means his death will bring. Indicating that the moment he breathed his last, uh, judgment would fall down from heaven. Lo and behold, that is precisely what happened. 969 years after Methuselah opened the womb, God opened the heaven. And every single impenitent rebel drowned in the flood. For as long as uh, his heart continued to beat, the message to the world was patience extended. But the moment his heart stopped, the message to the world was patience expired. Of course, the tragedy was that the wicked paid no attention to the warnings whatsoever. They neither heeded God's preacher in Enoch nor his patience in Methuselah. And this is a really important point that I want you to grasp. Because if there's one thing that's worse than putting off death, it's putting off judgment. The first time it was by flood, but the second time it'll be by fire. And if you're thinking to yourself that the Son of Man is tarrying because he's indifferent to wickedness, then think again. His delay does not demonstrate his apathy towards sin, but his compassion towards sinners. Peter put it this way, 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If until now you have shut your ears to heaven's warnings, if you have simply shrugged off the the threats of damnation, here is your opportunity to come to your senses. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Every breath you draw is a token of his long-suffering toward you. Therefore, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Methuselah's life embodied the hope of repentance. But then Noah's life embodied the hope of rest. You see, uh, up until verse 28, uh, every generation in this genealogy has witnessed their neighbors descend into depravity and their relatives descend into the grave. So much so that by the time Lamech appears, this weight of sin and Death has become unbearable. But then the family tree bears another unexpected fruit. And as Methuselah's son gazes into the eyes of his firstborn, he utters the following prophetic words in verse 29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now the Jews, uh, amongst others, have uh, come up with all kinds of fanciful interpretations of this verse. It's even been surmised that uh, Noah would go on to uh, invent some kind of novel agricultural technology to free his contemporaries from the grueling labor of the land. But such an expectation, or explanation rather, falls far short of our author's intention. You see, the the problem was not the, the work per se, but the divine curse which accompanied it. In other words, the real malady was sin. And therefore the true remedy could only be the Messiah. In fact, uh, this whole passage is pregnant with such a messianic expectation. It anticipates the, the one who would come and restore the obscured image of God in mankind. The one who would come and, and break down and destroy the tyranny of death. The one who would become a curse for us in order that we might be blessed. And it's this one whom Lamech presumed to be lying in the cradle before him. Like Eve in regard to Cain, she thought 
that her firstborn, and he thought that his firstborn was the prophesied seed of the woman who had come to crush the serpent's head. He thought that Noah was the chosen one who had finally arrived to bring Sabbath rest to God's people. But little did he know that such a one was yet to come. If only he could have looked back, like we do, to the finished work of Christ at Calvary. If only he could have known, like we know, that this deliverance would not be from the ground, but from the grave. If only he could have heard, like we hear, those life-giving words of our Savior. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, if there's one thing that the fifth chapter of Genesis has taught us, it's that the seed of the woman will deliver his church from sin and death. And we've seen that theme permeating all three points in our passage, haven't we? So let me call you to frequently remember the brevity of life. Let me call you to strengthen your walk with the Lord and witness to the world. But above all, let me call you to rest by faith in the finished work of Christ. After all, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter whether your heritage is English or Scottish or even whether you're a Sethite or a Canaanite, but whether you're a descendant of the Messiah, whether your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship and adore you. Lord, we have seen that death was not your original intention for man, that it is an alien that invaded this race because of Adam's first transgression. But nevertheless, we bless you and thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ delivers his people from the tyranny of sin and death. We return thanks. We bless you for these things. We ask, O Lord, that our response would be the right one, not only to render to you the service of our lips, but also the service of our lives. So apply these truths to our hearts and bless your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me as we sing now our closing hymn, He Leadeth Me, O Blessed Thought, hymn number 600 in your hymn book. Let's stand together as we sing.